Well, good morning, everybody. Could we just um, take a moment and pray as we get started here? Let's just pray. Heavenly Father, thank you that we can gather here today. Thank you that we can enjoy being with you and with one another. And um, as we think about this very broad topic of faith and work, Lord, we pray that uh, our, our ideas, our thoughts would be yours, not just ours. And um, we do ask for the inspiration of the Holy Spirit just to lead us into all truth. Jesus, we pray in your name. Amen. Well, this is a topic that I find is it's very easy to talk about with almost anybody because most everybody actually works and, um, and is, is trying to find some synthesis of their, uh, their, their faith, their, their, their spiritual commitments, and what they're doing vocationally on a daily basis. And so it's kind of a very accessible topic, and we all have our experiences. And actually, just to pick up on what Jason said there right at the outset, I, I, I am not a theoretician. You know, I'm a, I'm a practitioner. I'm just one other person out in the marketplace loving Jesus and, you know, wanting to have it all be uh, very integrated, basically. But uh, my hope is that I could throw out some thoughts for you just based upon essentially the experiences that I've had, plus, you know, I've done, I have done a lot of reading and thinking about this topic, but just as kind of thought starters, and then, and then let's just see where the conversation goes, because I think that, uh, I, I, I know that I don't have all wisdom on this, on this point, but I do think it matters, that, and that's really, that's really the starting point. I think this topic really matters. So um, if you didn't have a chance to get one, I just sort of outlined the things I was hoping we could talk about today, and... Um, uh, so maybe we can just dive in. And I actually thought it might make sense to begin with just a couple of definitions because there are two words that I'm going to use several times in the course of our time together here this morning. So one is work. And the, the definition of work that I would like to suggest, at least for our discussion this morning, is purposeful activity. So that's a pretty broad definition, actually. Uh, a parent who is caring for their child at home is working in this definition. A gymnast who's pursuing her or his uh, craft is working. But likewise, a computer programmer is working, a, a bootmaker is working, a farmer is working. Um, so it's, a, it's really a, it's, it's a, it's a, fairly, it's a fairly broad definition. And then the other, the other word I'll use several times this morning is marketplace, which I would define pretty simply as purposeful activity with others or involving others, basically. So... Um, so one is working if one is a salesperson out calling on one's account. Uh, one, is, one is working if being an investment banker. Um, in this definition, we wouldn't say, for example, that a painter in front of his canvas is in the marketplace, though working, but not in the marketplace. So that's kind of the, the distinction here. Um, there's something about the marketplace where there, there is a big overlap with the concept of work, but it's not a complete overlap. And I actually want to kind of highlight that word marketplace as we get started here, because sort of in conclusion, I'd actually like to just suggest that there's something that is uniquely opportune about the marketplace for a Christian. And I'll, and I'll sort of come to that as, as, we, as we get into this. But those are just a couple of points of departure. So... You know, it's kind of a big and not really well-defined category when we talk about faith and work. So I think maybe it would make sense to even take a few minutes and look at the ways that this topic normally seems to get framed up. 
And um, there, there, there seem to be four primary strands of thinking about the, the, the overlap or the intersection of faith and work. Um, and and I, I've listed them out here for you. I'm actually intending to focus mostly on the fourth. And it's not that the first three are unimportant. They're all important. But uh, for a couple of reasons that I'll just develop here, I thought that maybe we could mostly give our time over to the fourth one today. So let me, let me walk through the first three uh, bef before getting to the last one. So there's, there's one category, um, and actually there's probably as much or more about this uh, out there, in, in, at least in the reading that I've done, uh, than any of the other topics. And that is kind of this category of your work matters to God. It's me your work is meaningful and is meaningful to your creator and to your Lord. Um, and there are, a couple of, there are a couple of sort of biblical uh, starting points that we have when we kind of think about that. One is, you know, we read, we read at many places. And, and by the way, I've, 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 I've given some scriptural citations for many of the points I'm making here today. You know, I very much, these are illustrative. In other words, there's kind of a whole council of scripture approach that should be taken to anything where we're trying to really get to truth. And so I don't want to in any sense give the impression that, oh, well, this verse right here sort of fully makes, makes the point or fully makes my point because that's actually not at all the way I think about it. But I just wanted to offer some citations that have kind of been helpful to me and at work in my mind as I've thought about all this. So uh, on the topic of your, ma your work matters to God, um, one of our sort of points of departure in Scripture is right up front that God is a creative worker. We read about his, his work and the creative capacity that he demonstrated even at the beginning of all things. And you combine that with the observation that we are his image bearers. Therefore, we have the privilege, basically, of imaging him by doing creative work. Um, and you know, not only do we read that in Genesis 1, but in John 4, for example, Jesus says, my father is always at his work to this very day, and so am I. So there's, kind of, there's, a, there's a line of thinking there, which is basically we are in his image. He has gifted us uh, by creating us in his image, and so we have the opportunity and we have the, uh, the privilege of imaging him by being creative workers, basically. Now, that, you know, for me, that's kind of an inspiring thought. However, if, if you don't find yourself necessarily inspired by that thought, then there's sort of another way into the same topic, and that is what's often referred to as the cultural mandate, which we also read in Genesis, which is basically the instruction that we're to harness and subdue the creation. So you can either sort of have the inspiration of, I get to, I get to image my father, or he's told me that I actually should be uh, uh, engaged with with this world and doing things which are which are which have a, a creative uh, and uh, productive quality to them. So you can you know it's, they're they're two sides of the same coin, but but that's all in there. Um, and and I've also uh, tried to provide you know a book. There there are just so many books on on these topics that you know I don't want to uh, shorten your reading list, but I, I just wanted to throw out at least one for each of these topics where, um, you know, I, I really found, I found it very helpful to spend time with these authors. So Tim Keller has a book called Every Good Endeavor. I don't know if many of you have had a chance to read it, but it takes a very elevated work, uh, view of work. And it's, it's definitely on the, the inspirational side. Tim also references the cultural mandate. He also references actually a lot of things that can go wrong in our sojourn 
uh, out there in, in the marketplace. So it's, it's a very good book, and if you haven't had a chance to read it, I would recommend it to you. So that's the first sort of line of inquiry, your, matter work, your, your work matters to God. There's a second sort of question that seems to get asked quite a bit uh, among people that are trying to be thoughtful about work and the marketplace and faith, and, it, and, it, and it, you can sort of summarize all of it as what kind of work should a Christian do, I guess is you know, sort of a label that we could put on all of that. And some of the thinking that, that goes into that line uh, uh, is about trying to, under, trying to understand basically what are God's preferences for what we do and, also to, and as a part of trying to understand those, actually observing Jesus and what he did uh, when, when he was here on the earth. So some of the things that, that are sort of, the, sort of the motivating ideas inside of this line of thinking um, would tend to be, for example, God's uh, seeming preference for the poor. And so, you know, for example, we read in Leviticus 25 where the nation of Israel is taught that you are to care for the, the, the stranger uh, just as you would a member of this community. And there's a lot in and around Leviticus 25, which is also about behaviors inside of the, the faith community. Um, we've also got the parable of the rich man and Lazarus, where, you know, sort of in, in the day, as we read in the parable, the rich man would literally step over poor Lazarus as he was sort of lying about and the animals would come and lick his sores. But then there's this great interpolation you know, that occurs at the end of the story where Lazarus is in heaven and the rich man is in agony. And, um, and, and actually, there, 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 there's a sense in all of that that actually sort of the rich man sort of received his reward in his day, and Lazarus is now receiving his reward uh, in heaven. And uh, so again, you sort of get to this sense of, of, of maybe there's a preference as it relates to sort of the kingdom and the economy for those who are, um, who are not wealthy in this world. I also uh, just wanted to, uh, you know, we, we've all been enjoying uh, uh, Jason's sermon series on James, uh, and thank you for that, Jason. And uh, even, I think it was last week or was it the week before, we were, we were in the verses uh, where we read in James 1 that religion which the father considers pure and undefiled is this, to, to visit the widows and orphans in their affliction and to keep oneself free from the pollution of the world. But that notion of the widow and, you know, what a, what a terrible thing it was to be a widow in biblical times. I mean, you were just kind of in this place in the society that was just not the place you basically wanted to be. And to be an orphan, to be, you know, to be fatherless, for example, in a in a patriarchal society where you know, property rights generally tended to flow in that way. I mean, that, that was a very difficult place to be. So you know, poor uh, can be defined in a lot of ways. It can be literally, you know, I have no currency in my pocket. But there's, I think scripture kind of gives us a sense that there's a, broader, there's a broader definition of poor. But it seems as if God actually has a, a preference for the, for the poor and the disadvantaged, in a sense. Um, there's another dimension to what we read in terms of what are we to do uh, in Scripture, which I guess you could, you could summarize as the pursuit of social justice. So, you know, we, we have lots of teaching in Isaiah, for example, about um, 
you know, this society is not really the way that it's supposed to be. The prophet is really calling out uh, uh, the society and, and, and really putting a finger on, in many ways, the behaviors of the leaders who are just not really caring for the, the nation the way that they're supposed to. And the wellspring of that, of course, is that they're not really faithful to the word of God. And, and, and so there are consequences related to all of that. Also in Micah 6, you know, there's the very famous passage about, you know, what does, what does the Lord require of you, man? It's to act justly and love mercy uh, and to walk humbly before your God. So there's, a, you know, there's just this, there's just this sense that there, 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 there is a right way that things should be done. Uh, and so sort of mitigating for things being done the right way is something that we could do. It's something that we can, we can spend time on. Um, there's also uh, the, uh, the uh, pursuit of, of healing, of the, curing physical remedy or remedies to physical uh, suffering. And, you know, here I would just say sort of Jesus' entire ministry. And, you know, there's a lot of good discussion out there, by the way, about why was Jesus doing all of this healing? Was it, was it for the utility of the healing in the life of, for example, the woman who just wanted to touch the hem of his uh, the hem of his, of his garment, or was it actually that it was demonstrative really of something bigger? So you can sort of take it at both levels, basically. But there have been a lot of people over the course of the last couple of millennia that have been highly motivated to, for example, set up hospitals. You know, I mean, a lot of the hospitals were really an innovation of, from within the Christian community going way, way back, hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of years. But, uh, but a real motivation, which is there is this call to serve, and, and one of the ways to serve is to serve those that are physically suffering. Uh, and, um, and, and, that's, you know, that's, and that's good work, basically. Um, uh, I also just referenced here when John the Baptist sent his disciples to inquire of Christ, are you the one that we've been looking for? Jesus quoted the Old Testament, and he said, the, the blind can see, the lame can walk, those with leprosy are healed, the deaf can hear, the dead are raised. So there's a lot of sort of something is happening in the physical world as an evidence. Again, Jesus was actually quoting the Old Testament when he said all that. But um, so it, it would seem as if our Lord, our guide, actually has you know, focus uh, on, on this particular topic as well. Um, one, uh, one work, which is kind of uh, sort of representative of, of this particular line of thinking, D.L. Moody, who you know, was kind of inside the movement that led to Moody Bible Institute, for example, uh, he, he wrote a very lively work called To the Work, To the Work, Exhortations to Christians. And it was, you know, it's kind of clear that a lot of you know, his thinking is basically along this second line, which is there are, there are particular things to which we might apply ourselves as Christians. And by the way, uh, on the first three, I, I will give just a very brief commentary uh, on, on, on each of them. The first one about your work matters to God. To me, that's just a truth statement. I just say amen. Yeah, I think that's exactly right. And I'm, I can't really think of anything else to say other than, yeah, I think <laughs> that's absolutely true. On the second one about what kind of work should a Christian seek, you know, I'll just, I'll just say that I think that we have a lot of freedom as Christians, and there's actually great breadth in terms of, of, you know, like what fields of endeavor we can, we can move into. I would think that almost as a matter of conscience, if there was something that we judge to be, you know, literally immoral, 
then we would be called to sort of avoid that. But those are, those are kind of narrow categories, I tend to think, whereas if you really do believe your work matters to God, you pretty quickly get to, well, you know, a cab driver that drives their cab well, that's a contribution. You know, and so, and so, and, and, you know, we have, for example, in 1 Corinthians 6, Paul talks about everything is permissible for me. Now, I think he's mostly talking about interacting with the society. I think he's mostly, you know, he's even sort of in this mode of food sacrificed to other gods and other idols. But everything is permissible for me. I just think there's this general sense that there's freedom. And so I don't, I personally actually don't find it all that helpful to try to define one's work by trying to come up with a Christian definition of, of work. Um, rather, I think it's more about how we, uh, how we go about doing what it is we do. And actually, if it's really about sort of almost offering what we can do as a gift to the Lord, then I think a lot of the, the and, and we could spend all afternoon talking about this, but I think a lot of the criteria should be much more about, well, what are you gifted for? You know, basically, there's something that ignites when people are sort of, they can sense the contribution that their work makes to the world, what's needed in the world, and that it, and it lines up with what they're actually capable of and good at. That's a really wonderful, if you've never had a chance to counsel with somebody that's younger than you, and you have a chance to just help them find that intersection, I mean, you will feel electricity in the air. When somebody gets that about their own life, it's just thrilling. It's absolutely thrilling. So that's the second, that's kind of the second line of inquiry. The third line of inquiry, and I'm I'm really painting with a broad brush here, but sort of characterizing it as work-life balance. So it's something about, yes, we do work, but then there's the rest of life. And so how does all of that sort of compound? How does all of that come together? Um, We have several perspectives in scripture. One would be, of course, Sabbath rest. Uh, which is you know, kind of right there at the beginning in terms of something that God is uh, commanding us. There's also a point of view at some places in Scripture, at least I find, that is kind of along the lines of work is, sort of a, is facilitating more than sort of the absolute object. And so, for example, we, we have some verses in 1 Thessalonians 4 where, uh, where Paul writes, make it your object to lead a quiet life, to work with your hands, and to mind your own business. <laughs> At least in the translation I read, that's, which I just love that. You know, it's like, boom, you know, it's like a punch in the face. Mind your own business, just as we told you, so that your daily life will win the respect of outsiders and so that you will not be dependent on anybody. So that's, I think that's a little bit of Paul almost kind of justifying, if I can, you know, maybe that's too strong, but commenting on his own tent-making ministry, basically, and saying, you know, there is a way to be where you actually sort of stand in this place where there's, there are fewer barriers to the gospel, to, to you being able to share the gospel, because you're in this place where you haven't burdened others uh, and where sort of the general conduct of your life sort of has won the respect of, of outsiders. Uh, but it, that's more about facilitation. There's not really a lot of comment there about the work itself. It's more about work as facilitating uh, in, a, in another direction. Um, we also have quite a bit of teaching about family and church as priorities. So, you know, we have in two places in the New Testament, in Titus and First Timothy, we have a listing of the qualifications for somebody to serve as uh, an elder in a church. And there we read a lot about sort of 
the conduct of one's home, for example, uh, as really a mark, almost, of qualification for, for the role. But, but even broader than that, I think, is just the context, which is what Paul has applied himself to uh, in talking, you know, speaking to these, these new believers, this newly forming church, was the church really matters, and, and the leadership of the church really matters, and one of, the, one of the principal ways to observe on the leadership of the church is to observe their conduct as it relates to their family. So it's kind of above even what the verse says, the whole context is, I want to talk to you about church, church leadership, and the conduct of your home, basically. And, you know, and that's, that's helpful. Um, also, making time for reflection and meditation. So almost any of the books that you read about prayer will take you into this line of thinking you know, really pretty quickly. And, of course, we have, we have the example of Jesus, who would frequently take retreats, usually after he'd had these very intense engagements uh, with uh, supporters or detractors, usually supporters and detractors at the same time. And so he would, he would, uh, he would go on retreats. Uh, and, you know, he's our, he's our guide. He's our head. So, you know, following his, his example is a, is a, good, um, is a good thing. Um, one book that, that I really like, and in fact, I really like this author a lot, Peter Kreeft. I don't know if you've had much of a chance. He, he writes these very interesting, lively, he, he picks characters from history and puts them together, and that's how he makes his point. So uh, the best things in life is actually Socrates walking around <laughs> in the modern world and encountering people and um, between heaven and hell. He's read a lot of them. They're really fun, and they're, they're not that thick, and I think you might really enjoy them. But, you know, implicitly... What Kreeft is getting at in, in that book is basically the things that you think are important maybe aren't all that important, and find a way to kind of think about that and put your attention on the things that are maybe a little bit more important. You know, on this one, I'll comment that, um, you know, how can you argue at some level with the notion of balance? I mean, balance, is, balance sounds very balanced, <laughs> you know, and it has, a, it has a sense about it of sustainability, uh, it has a, there's kind of a wisdom almost that it feels like is underneath that, which is like, you know, don't, you know, don't get wrapped around the axle of any particular thing, but, you know, life consists of many different elements, and so find a way to sort of interact with all of those. And so, and, and actually, that appeals to me very much uh, also. I, I just have to say, at a personal level, that really appeals to me, the notion of sort of balance and evenness and steadiness and sustainability and things like that. But I will say that this, this line of thinking, which is work-life balance as it relates to a Christian, I, 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 I do sit in this place of tension with this idea a little bit. And the reason is because Jesus is our leader and is our head and our guide. And you know, he was the guy that said about himself, foxes have holes and birds of the air have nests, but the Son of Man doesn't have anywhere to lay his head down. Wasn't married, didn't have children. Uh, and so I just find that really challenging, actually. You know, I would, I would prefer to be balanced. You know, I would prefer to take hot showers. You know, my observation of Jesus' life is that it wasn't balanced. <laughs> and he never got to take hot showers. And, you know, there's a lot about his life that I actually, you know, kind of just in my personal preferences sort of almost even resist a little bit. Um, but he's our, he's our head. You know, he's our guide. He's our, he's our leader. And so 
I like the idea of work-life balance. I just don't know really how strongly that is affirmed in Scripture, I have to say. And, you know, but we also have other teachings, right? We have, you know, like a believer is worse than the heathens if they don't take care of their family. And again, you can pick any one verse. So, I, you know, I'm actually, I don't want to say, well, here's the definitive answer to, you know, any of those. But um, anyway, that's just, that's just kind of a perspective, a little personal perspective on that one. So those are, those are, those are three there's a lot of commentary on all of those. I think it's very good to spend time thinking about these. Your work matters to God. What kind of work should a Christian seek? And this whole notion of sort of the balance of, of, of aspects of life. But what I really wanted to um, suggest that we sort of focus on uh, this morning is the fourth. Uh, and that is, you know, for almost for lack of better words, grounds of being for Christians in the marketplace. And so kind of the the notion here is really, it's like the teaching uh, that we have in Matthew 7. If the tree is good, guess what? You're going to get good fruit. And if the tree is bad, the fruit isn't going to be so good. And the notion is really that you you really can't actually hide who you are. You know, it is going to come out. And I, I actually think that's really true, I have to say. I think, you know, character is proven over long periods of time, but if you've known people for a long period of time, you get a, an ever deeper sense of who they are, and actually, one of the opportunities in the marketplace is, I, at least I, I am not around people who are under more stress and asking more questions about what is the purpose of life than in the marketplace. And therefore, it's inherently opportune, and I'll come back to this point, uh, simply because you have the opportunity for, for these kinds of encounters. But it's particularly when we're under stress that we just start, stop, start uh, operating reflexively. And that's when you really find out who somebody is. And, and particularly, I would say, actually, leaders. You know what? You just, I mean, leaders can't hide it. They're trying to make so many decisions, and they go so fast, and, and so much of it is nearly automatic that you, you mix that. You mix time pressure up with the stress of things matter, and you end up with, oh, I have a really good understanding of who the, what that person really values. Um, so... You know, grounds of being. So, like, who should we be as we, as we navigate in the marketplace? And I, I find that that gets much less attention than the first three. But to my way of thinking, is arguably the most important. And I'll, I'll try to expand on that just a little bit. And you may, you may or may not agree with that. But th- this one, I think, actually is, is, is preeminent. It, at least it is for me in, in my own experience. Um, some of us had a chance to read together not long ago, uh, Jamie Smith's you are what you love. And he's, he really is about, about grounds of being. Fundamentally, that's what he's trying to get. He doesn't talk about the marketplace that much uh, or work, um, but, but, he, but he is very much on this, well, who are you, basically? And I, I, I just think that deserves a lot of attention, and it doesn't get a lot of attention. So I thought maybe we could spend a few minutes on that one today. And so um, maybe to get into that... Um, I thought maybe I would share with you three stories from my own experience in the marketplace that have just, they're so drilled into my thinking. I, I, I remember these three events all the time, basically, and, and, and I'm always sort of coming to a new understanding of just how formative these three experiences have been for me. So let me, let me just share them with you and then maybe step back from them and just sort of uh, uh, abstract a little bit what those, at least what they mean for me. So the first one was, um, so I should say, by the way, by way of context, I was, uh, I came to faith when I was 23, 
And essentially, my condition when I came to faith was I had received, as a 23-year-old, everything that I could possibly have thought that I wanted in life. I mean, everything. And I was just not happy. <laughs> and I had no categories. I grew up in a family. We did not go to church. My father was anti-Christian. And, uh, but I just, had, I just arrived at this moment where I thought, boy, you know, if I get everything I want in life and I'm still not happy then I don't think I'm going to have a very happy life. And it was really unsettling. It was troubling. Uh, and that was, what, that was really, God really used that to ignite um, you know, my, own, my own walk with Jesus. And so at 23, I was saved. And about six months after that, I went off to graduate school. So you know, I was, I was so hungry for the word I was jumping into a field that I had no background in. I was the biggest pile of moldable clay you have probably ever encountered in your life. And, um, and so the one thing I knew was, as I went into this graduate program, that the, and I, I, I almost, I mean, I, I barely knew the phrase Christian fellowship, but I just, I was kind of like, I got to have that. And uh, so the university that uh, I went to for graduate school Organ, had, a, had a fellowship group organized for all of the graduate schools. And so I, would, I was getting together with people who were at the medical school, the law school, the architecture school, the government school, the business school where I was, and, uh, which was just a wonderful experience. But it, it, one of the things it, it, just, it just drove in for me right there at the beginning was there are a lot of different fields of endeavor. You know, I mean, I had... I had when I'd worked as an engineer, the only people I was around were engineers. And when I was in this MBA program, the only people generally that I was around were people that were getting MBAs. But this was really a great thing. I mean, I, some of my best lifelong friends, actually, I met in that, in that fellowship group. In, in your last year in that group, and of course, you know, a medical student goes for four years and a law student for three years, MBAs go for two years. It's probably why I chose it, because it was just, you know, fast. Um, but in your last year, you were invited to do a process that was called ordination to daily work. And what that was about was basically taking the time. So we would just get together and fellowship the way we always did. But in the, in the, over to the side, what we were asked to do was to basically invest our time and energy in anticipating our ministry once we left our graduate schools. And the whole point of view was that you will go out into the world as a minister of the gospel. Oh, by the way, you'll, you know, you'll be working in business, you'll be working in medicine, uh, et cetera. But the point of view was you haven't gone to a seminary and nobody's going to hand you a certificate, but you are being ordained to the daily work of representing the gospel, whatever your chosen field. And I have to say that even today, I'm still appreciating how basic that was for me in terms of my own thought about what, what I was doing. Because I think there's a very big difference between saying, you know, I'm, I, am, I, I run a hedge fund and I'm a believer versus I'm a Christian working at a hedge fund versus I'm a minister of the gospel and I'm out there in the business world somewhere. I mean, those are, they're, they're kind of the same, but they're sort of not at the same time. And I, I'm going to come back to this notion of identity, but I think one of the most important grounds of being for a Christian in the marketplace, I would like to suggest, actually is the way we self-identify. And so I'll, I'll come back to that. 
So that was, that, that was a very formative experience for me at the age of 23. The second one, I'm much further into my career. I'm now a, uh, a partner with a, a global consulting firm called Boston Consulting Group, which actually happens to be where I met my wife. So I am very grateful for Boston Consulting. We were, we're, we were working there at the same time. Um, but um, one, of the, one of the things we did, so I was a partner at the firm. And one of the things we did was we helped company A decide to acquire company B. So after that happens, what typically occurs is that there's sort of a big confab, and you bring the leadership teams of the two uh, organizations together because you want to immediately get on with integration and make it as seamless as possible, all that good stuff. So the guy who had been named to lead the integrated, uh, the combined organization, called a meeting, and he had maybe six people from the first organization, six people from the second, and there were a couple of us from Boston Consulting also, since we had kind of you know, helped get this thing put together. So we had a meeting one day, and the room was set up in a horseshoe shape. And the guy who was going to be the, who, who was the boss of the, the, the leader of the new organization was standing in the middle. He said, let's go around and get to know each other. And so why don't, why don't you tell us a little bit about yourself, what's your name, kind of the work you've done up until now. And uh, oh, by the way, tell us like, you know, who your hero is. Who do you admire? And I was sitting third from the front of the horseshoe, which was really bad because I had enough time to think about it. Because when he put the question out there, the immediate thought that I had was Jesus. That was the just boom. That was just the name that came straight to my head, and I didn't have enough thought. I, I didn't have another thought. That was it. However, I then sat there, and I thought, well, you know, Jesus is in a different category. I'm not sure he's really asking that. <laughs> And, you know, this setting, is that, is that really kind of what people want to, you know, right? So I had like four minutes to have that conversation with myself. And so when it came my turn to introduce myself, I said Winston Churchill. And I admire Winston Churchill a lot. I actually think he was the greatest man of the 20th century. But I didn't say Jesus. So now, now it's, it's still going around the horseshoe. And about four or five people further on, was one of my partners at Boston Consulting Group. And uh, he said the Dalai Lama. And it, it, knowing him and also the way that he said it, you know, I mean, like, who is the Dalai Lama? You know, that's an interest. you know, there are different perspectives on that. But it was clear to me that to him, he was a divine being. I don't even remember if I was able to stay in the room for the rest of that meeting. But I can tell you that for about a month, I walked around. It's probably the deepest experience of grief I have ever had in my life. I felt like, oh my gosh, I just crucified him all over again. I mean, that's really what it felt like. I felt like, you know, like I was in the outer courtyard. And I, 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 just, I, it was su I felt sick. I felt sick for about a month. And um, that has always stuck with me. Just the depth of that feeling has always stuck with me. And I'll, and I'll relate that to another sort of ground of being point uh, the, that hopefully we can get to here in, in just a minute. So that's, that's a second experience that I had that has really, really had a, an, an impact on me. And the third um, is, I've, I've called it here, this is how it really works. So um, it was either right before or right after I became the CEO of our company, the company that I'm still the CEO of. And, um, 
I had some thoughts about uh, how our board of directors, the composition of our board of directors might modify. I mean, long story short, I felt that it was, it was not a diverse enough group of people, all fine people, but not a diverse enough group of people measured in many ways. Background and experience, gender, ethnicity, just in all ways. You know, it just felt to me like it just needed to, it needed to become more diverse. So what I did was I called up, uh, and if, sorry, if I'm getting into the arcana of the way public companies work, just stop me because it's not really that interesting, but, but just in order to maybe get the context out there. So you've got the board of directors, and the, the president works for the board of directors. Now, it happens that I'm also the chairman of our board, so you kind of get into this funny little place. But my, my view has always been I work for the board of directors. I am an employee of the board of directors. And so boards set up these committees through which they get all their work done. One of them is called the Nominating or Nominating and Governance Committee, which is mostly responsible for the composition of the board. You know, like who are we going to nominate to be future board members? Do we have the right mix today, et cetera? So I had some ideas. I, had, I actually had a few people in mind, but I also just kind of had these general ideas about where it should go. So I, um, so I rang up. Uh, the, uh, do people still say that? Rang up? That's, <laughs> maybe not. I called. I phoned. I reached out to. Thank you. Thank you. Thanks. Uh, I reached out to um, the chairman of our nominating and governance committee. And I said, oh, I was just calling to talk about the composition of our, our board. And is that, you know, like, can we talk about that? You okay with that? And he said, oh, yeah, sure. You know, I mean, and we're good friends and all that. So I'm getting into it, and I'm sort of, I was saying the kinds of things that I said a few minutes ago, we can you know, sort of rebalance the board this way, that way, the other way. And I'm kind of going on, and then you know how when you're in a conversation you realize you're doing all the talking and the other person isn't really interacting a whole lot? So at one point I just stopped and said, well, what are you thinking? You know, like, how do you react to all that? And he said, in so many words, he said, basically, Scott, we want to put on the board whoever you want to have on the board. Like, who do you want to have on the board? That's who we'll put on the board. And I thought, it was like a scales falling from my eyes moment. It's like, are you kidding? You know, because in that, there, and he's a great guy. He's also been a public company CEO himself. He's a good guy. He's a, an ethical guy. But I was thinking, you know, Beth and I twice walked through Zuccotti Park when Occupy Wall Street was there. And, you know, I mean, I was, I was a little more sympathetic to all of that than you might think a, you know, a business person would be. But... I think those kids were trying in a very uninformed and inarticulate way to get at something, which is, can't powerful people stack the deck for themselves? And, and they were more on the government business overlap because they had observed lots of banks getting bailed out and you know, the government was setting pay packages, you know, helping executives to preserve their options and their ownership. Decisions were being made, institutions were being supported, but individuals were benefiting. And so, in their very inarticulate way, all those kids in Zuccotti Park were trying to feel their way towards that. Well, I felt like I, that's what I was looking at. It's like, you know, put, put, who do you want to have on the board? Put on the board. You know. The board is supposed to be a check on the CEO, on the management team. And it just, it just I, 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 I felt like I was 15 years old, and it's like, really? This is the way the world really works? Because I really thought he was going to say, well, yeah, thanks for your input, and we'll go do our work. And we'll come up with a slate of nominees. And that's actually the way I think it should work. 
but that's not the way that it worked. So uh, it was one of those, like, you're looking behind the curtain moment and says, oh, I didn't really realize it worked quite that way. Had a big, had a big impact on me also. So what I want to do is just tease out what those three, uh, those three experiences, how they've translated for me. And I don't mean to say, by the way, that necessarily they translate this way for everybody. Maybe not. But this is just, and this is really the invitation to conversation. But this is this is what I've I've derived from those three uh, those three experiences. The first one, which was about you know ordination to daily work, and at this moment when I was the most moldable version of myself that I think I have ever been, I think what happened to me at that moment is that my identity actually got changed. My identity changed when I when I came to faith in Christ. And it changed again when I went through that process because from there, I really did come away thinking, oh, I don't, have, I don't have the diploma and I haven't gone to a seminary, but I, you know, I am a minister of the gospel. I mean, that, that actually is the best definition of who I, who I want to be. Uh, and, you know, and, and there were people around me who were going into medicine and into law. And it just, the, the effect of all of that was, yeah, you're going to go do work, which is different than the work I'm going to do, but sort of the, the bond was at a deeper place, and it was we all have this point of view. Now, I do not want to claim that I am a particularly good or effective minister of the gospel. I mean, I, absolutely, that is not my point here. But my point is it did, it did get in there right at the beginning that that was actually a point of view about me going into the marketplace. And, and that has always stuck with me. And I'm still realizing, even today, the importance of that identification, uh, uh, just as, you know, essentially, it just, it just determines where I'm standing and where I'm pointed as I look out at the world, basically. And uh, so, and it's not without challenge, because I, I don't feel like I'm a great minister of the gospel. But I do feel like that's actually the better definition of who I am and who I should be. The second, the second point, so the whole failure to communicate, uh, uh, you know, I had a chance to witness to Jesus. I had the thought, I had the impulse, and I didn't. And, you know, it, just the way it made me feel, if nothing, I don't like feeling that way, and I don't want to feel that way. The lesson that that taught me is basically, and this is going to sound really simple, it's not all, it, with practice it becomes easy, but it doesn't start out easy, is... I just learned from that that any time I had the opportunity to say Jesus' name, I'm just going to say Jesus' name. I mean, it's really, it's really kind of that simple. The, the add-on to that, the add-on to that is that um, it's really this, it's, it's this point about affiliation, I guess, is, is the way I would put it. So am I willing to affiliate with Jesus? Or, or do I affiliate with Jesus? Do I affiliate with Jesus in front of other people? And the way, the way that I sort of process this myself is I will absolutely, between April and October, I will absolutely bore you silly with my love for the Boston Red Sox. I mean, I love the Red Sox. Yeah? All right. Love the Red Sox. You know, if you, uh, there's stories about that too. But anyway, yeah. Um, yeah, it's, okay. My wife is a Cubs fan, so, you know. Our, our family had a good 2016. Um, but anyway. You know, I'll bore you silly. I mean, and I don't even actually really 
honestly. I, I'm not going to be that slowed down if you're not that interested in it. I mean, I will have to see your eyes literally glaze over before I'll, before I'll stop because I really, you know, I like baseball and, right? I love Jesus a lot more than I love the Boston Red Sox. Why in the world would I blather on about a baseball team and not talk about him? You know, I mean, just at, at almost a, just a sort of a logical point or being consistent, it's like, why would I do that? And, I mean, we all know the reason why we don't do it, which is, you know, it, uh, the gospel can be offensive to people. Jesus can be offensive to people. They can sort of think you're sort of an odd guy or gal if you, you, know, if you talk about him. But to that, I would just add, how many people do you encounter that go on and on and on about whatever their passion is? And I can just tell you in the modern world, there are quite a few people that will just, you know, turn on the fire hose and start shooting it at me on topics that I don't even find that pleasant, actually. I mean, I don't, you know, there are elements of popular culture that just I don't like. And we will go on and on and on. And it would never occur to me to try to shut them off. So why do I, you know, wh- where I got to was, well, why do I shut myself off? You know, I just, it's, 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 it's actually, it's, it's, a, it's, a, it's an untruth, actually, to not talk about it, because I love them, you know? So anyway, that's what that episode taught me, was that a, just whatever else is true, and if it's just as simple as saying his name, you know, I think that's, that's actually the greater part of my ministry in the world, is to simply be able to acknowledge him and affiliate with him. You know, I will, I will try to talk, I will try to argue people into points of view, which is not really very effective, generally. But to just simply relate to him, to affiliate with him, and, you know, maybe to add, and I love him, but just start with Jesus, and I love him. You know, that says a lot in the modern world. So anyway, I, so to identity, which kind of got baked in there at the beginning, I would add affiliation and just a willingness to affiliate with him, basically. And that may actually be, perhaps, our greatest ministry out in, out in the world, out in the marketplace. And then the third one, uh, you know, kind of, uh, oh, looking behind the curtain, you know, I'm in a system that really kind of has maybe a few questionable dimensions to it. You know, well, what do you do in those situations? What do you do in situations which, are, which have ambiguity in them, uh, where maybe structurally they're not exactly the way that you think they should be? Maybe they're even pricking your, your Christian sensibilities as you, as you encounter them. And, you know, again, let me just say, I'm, I'm a practitioner. I, you know, I'm just throwing out what I have basically gotten to. But, you know, I, I often in this regard think about when Jesus was asked about paying the tax to Caesar. You know, apparently his project wasn't first order about bringing down the Roman Empire because of the way he responded in that particular situation. And, I mean, they were occupiers and they were hated. I mean, just to be very clear. And all the people that, that were in that community that were considering whether or not to affiliate with Jesus, 